welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. I don't know if this is true for you, but I find it quite odd that the lectionary has these readings on the last Sunday of Lent. Kind of seems like a couple of weeks too early. I mean, we have the Old Testament passage from Ezekiel, the Valley of the Dry Bones, giving a vision and a picture of some grand future resurrection. And the gospel reading that's all about resurrection. But until, whoop. (laughs) But it's not until Easter, right? That we should be doing these type of passages. I'm going to reflect on that a little bit at the end of the sermon. But I just wanted to, with this Sunday, just walk through the story. I mean, I'm going to make a a few points along the way. But I think this is an important story. And and one of the reasons why it is here in the lectionary is this is a critical story that sets things in motion, leading up to what we're going to walk through next week in Holy Week. And so I just kind of want to set the stage with the story and then maybe offer a few reflections at the end. Um, for the sake of bulletin length, the, a chunk of this story is, is cut out. And so to kind of catch you up to where we're at at this moment is earlier on, Jesus was in Jerusalem speaking to the religious leaders. And it said that they had an angry mob of leaders had gathered to stone and kill Jesus. And so he, with the disciples, fled Jerusalem, going across the Jordan to the place where John the Baptist was baptizing. Interesting side note. You will see that this is the beginning of the end, and it starts where everything began at the very beginning where his ministry began. And while they were there across the Jordan, Jesus got word that Lazarus was ill. Lazarus was not just some random guy. He was not just the blind man that we spoke about last week. This was Lazarus, the scriptures say, the one Jesus loved. The brother of Mary and Martha that we read about elsewhere. Someone who Jesus was very close to. And he does a strange thing. He delays for two days. Instead of going to the one whom he loved and was dying. Then after two days, he tells his disciples that they're going back to Judea because Lazarus has died. It says that the disciples first fought Jesus. Because if you remember, 
there was an angry mob wanting to kill Jesus. And so the disciples had good reason to say, if he's already dead, maybe let's just not go. And then in verse 16, right before we enter into the story, we have Thomas. The one that most everybody knows as doubting Thomas. Thomas looks to the group and says, let us also go that we may die with him. Real quick aside, like I know that Thomas is in glory. And so like he's probably not that stressed about many things. But I I think there are probably still moments that he's like thinking to himself, like 2000 years of church history. And I'm known as Doubting Thomas. Like, why couldn't these guys remember me for this? Like, let's go die with Jesus. No, I'm Doubting Thomas. Like, I I just, I feel bad for the dude, but I just had to bring that up. This is the same Thomas. And then we enter into the story. And in the first scene, we have Jesus with Martha. And in verse 21, we have Martha coming to Jesus saying, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. I mean, there's faith in this statement, right? Believing that if Jesus was there, her brother would not have died. But I think you can also catch a hint of frustration and anger in this statement. But we see that Martha still holds on to kind of a hysterical form of hope. And then we see in 23 through 24, Jesus speaking to Martha and Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection in the last day. I'm going to pause here for a second because what Martha speaks to Jesus is really good theology. This was the hope of many Jews. It was also an issue of debate because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees did not. And that was a tension during the day. But this was the hope. For the Jew... After death, he went to a shadowy reality called Sheol. Don't really know much about it. Actually, in the Old Testament, there's not a whole lot of discussion about the afterlife. There is discussion about life after the afterlife. As we read in our Old Testament passage in Ezekiel. And I will just pause here for a moment as we're preparing to celebrate the center of our faith is that for us, that is our hope too. Our faith centers around physical resurrection. I think far too often we make what is central a secondary issue. I've heard too often Many people say, well, you know, I know like some Christians believe that, you, do, you know, you just go to heaven when you die. And some believe in the, the resurrection of the dead and, and, and you know, that there will be a physical new creation. And, but, you know, like as long as we agree on politics or methics or morals or whatever it is, that's okay. St. Paul doesn't agree 
In 1 Corinthians, St. Paul said, is if there is no resurrection of the dead, physical resurrection that he argues for, he says, then our faith is futile. Our preaching is in vain. And we are still lost in our sins. So Martha is proclaiming a hope that is our hope too. The final resurrection of the dead. But we see that Martha did not fully realize who she was dealing with. And Jesus responds to her saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. See, all those promises, this future hope of resurrection, what Ezekiel is picturing towards, all of those things that Martha is holding on to, Jesus is saying, you don't realize, Martha, they're all embodied by me. They all point to me. And in this profound way, as Jesus was proclaiming again and again and again and again through his ministry, that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God was at hand. That the future reality of God's glorious kingdom and the resurrection of the dead was manifest somehow in the first century in Palestine, standing there in front of Martha. And so Martha makes a profound proclamation. Interestingly, the very same proclamation that Peter was praised for making. You are Messiah, the Son of God. And after that, it says that Martha goes and sends for her sister Mary. And as Mary comes running to see Jesus, those who were there consoling her, caring for her, came And followed after her. And we see that Mary comes saying the very same words as Martha. Words of faith. Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But I don't think that the, the, the context in this one gives, gives the idea of frustration. This we see is just hysteria. weeping, despair. It says that she was weeping and fell on her face. Crying out these broken words. And then in verse 33 through 35, I'll read it. It says, When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. The Greek word for greatly troubled, terasso, is a word that carries a meaning of actual physical distress to the place of shaking and quivering. 
It's also a word when describing a group is used to describe a riot. We have Jesus tremoring and shaking as he says, where did you lay him? And then the shortest verse in all of scripture. And I think one of the most profound verses in all of scripture. Two words. It's two words in the Greek as well. Jesus wept. We have to ask, why was he so troubled? Why is he weeping? If you go back, it's not in your bulletin, but if you go back in your Bibles in verse 4, Jesus alludes to the fact that he is going to raise Lazarus. He knows that this is but temporary. I don't know for certain, but I believe that the answer to why he wept is also the reason why he came in the first place. Love. Love that we see was questioned by Mary. Love that was questioned by Martha. Love that was questioned by many of the Jews that came with Mary. In verse 36. He loved him. And in that was facing in to the ultimate apex, the culmination of our broken, fallen destruction. This was not what was intended. But it's a reality that we all are hell-bent on retaining. This is a passage that is used in the lectionary in, 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 in Anglican funerals. I think I, I, I love that it's there, but I think it's important that we press into this because so often we are functional Gnostics, Neoplatonists, that when we think about this idea of death, because we say, oh, like a bird freed from a cage going to afterlife. That's actually imagery that was used by the first heretics, the Gnostics, to describe death. No, he wept because death is not what was supposed to happen. This is not right. And I think pondering these two little words, Jesus wept, provides a lifetime of contemplation regarding the nature of God. I mean, the picture of God that so often comes to mind, whether it be this like philosophical disinterest disinterested ground of being. Or maybe it's a jolly, benevolent grandfather who's kind of like a big, outerly, slightly more powerful Bobby McFarren telling us, don't worry, be happy. (laughs) Or on the flip, you know, it's the crotchety old man in the sky wagging his finger, yelling at us, just really hoping that we finally get our act together. Or whatever else comes to mind, that is all blown up. By these two simple words, Jesus wept. Emmanuel, God with us, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, weeps with us in the face of the pain and loss that is our reality. The Anglican bishop and renowned New Testament scholar N.T. Wright 
says it really well. It says, when we look at Jesus, not least when we look at Jesus in tears, we are seeing not just a flesh and blood human being, but the word made flesh. The word through whom the worlds were made weeps like a baby at the grave of his friend. Only when we stop and ponder this will we understand the full mystery of John's gospel. Only when we put away our high and dry pictures of who God is and replace them with pictures in which the word who is God can cry with the world's crying will we discover that the word God or what the word God really means. And so weeping Jesus goes to the tomb. Verse 39, we are reassured that Jesus is really dead. He's not mostly dead. Like, he is fully dead dead. Some of y'all got that reference. Um, Actually, so this is one portion of Scripture that I deeply prefer the King James Version. Because verse 39 reads in the King James, Martha, the sister of whom that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. And now listen, like I'm not a King James only guy. Like I'm not one of those dudes. There are a few passages though I think need to be read in the King James. Psalm 23, it has to be read. Yea, though I walk through the valley. Like that's how it has to be read. The Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. Like, it has to be read that way. And (laughs) verse 39, Lord, by this time he stinketh. (laughs) Those are the only passages. Everything else you can read, whatever translation you want, but King James right there. King James only in certain points. Um, But all of this is emphasizing that that Lazarus was dead. Fully dead. So this is not a healing. This is something very different. This is bringing back to life that who was dead. And we see that Jesus prays and he screams. Lazarus, come out. Loud as one with authority. And then if you read on, and I encourage you leading up to the start of Holy Week with Psalm Sunday to read on, we see that this is Jesus' last great miracle, or as John calls them, signs. That brought Lazarus out of the grave, but also sealed Jesus' own fate. That would lead to a series of events that would give Jesus a grave of his own. One that he was placed in not because he died of natural causes, but because of horrific torture and execution by a Roman cross. So as I said at the beginning, why these passages about resurrection before Easter at the end of Lent? First, a little point. This passage is actually not about resurrection. It's not a miracle of resurrection. It's resuscitation. He brings Lazarus back to life, but Lazarus will get old and die again. 
Resurrection is a transformation in which life, sinews and flesh is brought to our mortal bodies, but then we will no longer face death again. This is actually, in John's Gospel, pointed to and revealed as the final sign within Jesus' ministry. If you remember, I talked about this a few times, but in John's Gospel, there are a series of miracles, but he doesn't call them miracles, they are signs. They point beyond themselves to reveal something deeper about Jesus and the kingdom of God. And the fact is, is this is Jesus' final sign. All of the other signs, the healings, the water to wine, the feeding of the 5,000, all point to and lead to this. This is the final banner pointing to who Jesus is and why he came. To make dead people alive. Similarly, connected to that, This is at the end of Holy Week because as every sign pointed to this sign, because this sign pointed to what was going to happen in Holy Week, everything that we do hinges on Holy Week. Everything focuses on what happens and what we celebrate that week. Yes, God's love for us can be manifest in healing. His love for us can be manifest in provisions when we can't see provisions coming. <clears throat> and sometimes in God's love, he just doesn't show up. Sometimes our faith might draw us into a place of being ticked or lying on our face weeping, wondering why he's not there. I know we're good Christians, so we would never say it, but sometimes feeling, do you actually love me? But see, because all points to Holy Week and Easter, we are reminded that the love of God, his grace is rooted in a promise and a miracle that is far greater than any of those other things. The reality of life being drawn out of the ashes of death. And finally, our God is a God that weeps with us. He doesn't stand far off. Minimizing your pain. Apathetic to injustice and suffering. Disinterested or so far transcendent that it doesn't touch him. No, he's deeply troubled and weeps with his children as he watches us destroy ourselves. And in that is so moved to act that like what Jesus did with Lazarus as a sign of the greater work he would soon do. That troubled weeping with our own weeping, he came and dwelt among us so that he could take upon himself the evil of death 
so that all of us might one day walk out of the tomb. This is the last Sunday in Lent. And I'll say it from the pulpit, in many ways, Lent sucks. Not the practice that's valuable. But most of our life is in some ways an experience of the realities of Lent. Death, brokenness, suffering, a reminder that we are just ashes. Our own sin in front of our face. It can get hard. But Easter is coming. We hold out for the feast of the victory of the one who knows our brokenness, shares our weeping, and has joined himself with us so that we might know his joy, his victory, and his life. Though he might tarry, so long that all of us start to stinketh, Easter has come. Easter is coming. He is the resurrection in life. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue.